Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. Elijah was a prophet 400 plus years before Jesus and at a time where the culture and the nation was crumbling all around him, God raised him up to speak truth to power, to call his people back to the covenant that they had with God. Could God be raising someone to speak truth today and could it be you? Elijah's story is in the book of Kings, the book of Kings. We don't have a book called the book of Kings in our Bible. We have 1 Kings and 2 Kings. The book of Kings was originally one work, not separated into two. They split it into two, apparently, when they were translating the Old Testament into Greek. Don't really know why. Probably out of convenience, because it's a long story. The book of Kings is the story of the history of Israel from David, from the end of David's reign all the way to the exile in Babylon. So it's a long story, and it begins in about 960 B.C., when old King David is handing off the kingdom to his son Solomon. He, he says, you're in charge now. You're the king now with one big charge. You have one charge. You got to do this one thing, and that's build the temple. Israel had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years with no temple, only a tent, a tabernacle to worship God at. And then they moved into the land, and they occupied the land. The 12 tribes occupied the various parts of the land, and they still only had the tabernacle, no temple. David had boldly united all of the 12 tribes into one solid kingdom, but still no temple, only a tabernacle. The temple is to be the centerpiece of the nation of Israel, the place where God dwells among his people, and they still had no temple. David wanted to build the temple, but God told him, no, it's going to be your son, Solomon. And so David said, Solomon, you build the temple. And sure enough, Solomon builds the temple. He actually builds the temple, and the people of Israel are all so glad that now there is a place where they can go and worship the one true God, a place where God can now dwell among his people the way he wanted to. So the temple is built, the nation is strong, Israel seems to be at this great pinnacle, and everything is going well under Solomon's rule as he is the king. But you know the thing about Solomon, right? Solomon was really, really, really wise, but also really stupid, right? So as wise as he was, he also began to uh, build his collection of women, that's right, wives, concubines from all over the place, hundreds of them. He began to import them from other nations, sort of a way to make peace. You know, you give me some women and we'll give you peace, you know. Uh, so um, he builds this harem, more or less. And it's not good. And not only that, but the 
A lot of the women that he imports are women from surrounding nations who are idolatrous nations. And so the worship of God becomes heavily diluted with idol worship. Yeah, and so what really ends up happening is Solomon falls. You know, Solomon goes from being a good, good king until now he's, he's not good anymore. And as the nation goes, sorry, as the king goes, so goes the nation, right? And so since he kind of goes south, the whole nation goes south. I mean, soon after this, they have turmoil in the nation and the nation splits. The kingdom splits into two. You know, we're used to looking at the map of the New Testament Israel. You used to see in this right here by the Mediterranean Sea, Galilee and Dead Sea and Jerusalem. And you're used, we're talking about this all the time. But in, at this time when the nation splits, it looks like this. You got the southern kingdom here called Judah with Jerusalem as its capital. And you got Israel and Gilead on the north side. And the capital is Samaria. And so the whole story of kings is that God has promised. He's promised to unite this nation, and from this nation, he will bring the ultimate king. Not just any king, but the king, the deliverer king, who's going to once and for all set up God's kingdom here on earth and reign forever. But it seems like the main idea of kings is that whenever we have our hands on it, we blow it. Because the rest of the story of kings is about this long succession of kings, 20 in the north and 20 in the south, and it seems like each king is worse than the last. It's failure after failure after failure. It's idolater after idolater. It's corruption after corruption. It's murder, it's sex, it's violence, it's slavery, it's Baal worship, it's even child sacrifice at one point. I mean, it's the worst. It's just the worst story. No human king can ever live up to the promised king. So we see this success, the succession of awful, awful kings. And really, seriously, kings judges them all, and they're all bad. Like literally, there's 40 kings. Only eight of them are not bad. All the rest of them are really bad. And the characteristic of Israel at the time, the characteristic of the culture at the time is it's dominated by the worship of Baal. Now listen, I've been practicing all week saying Baal because I've always heard it pronounced Baal. Yeah, Baal. But that ain't the way they said it. They said Baal or Baal. They would call him Baal or call the gods the Baals. And so the Baal is a demon fertility god, right? And so they were worship this god. And this particular Baal that the Israelites were worshiping was known as the rain god or the storm god. So you can imagine in this dry, arid land, they're going to be seeking the blessing of rain, right? Give us the rain. Pour out the rain. We'll pray and we'll sacrifice and we'll even give our children to the Baal of rain, to the rain God. And that just led them to be even worse and worse and worse. And it's during this time that God introduces the office of the prophet to us. 
So God, God begins to raise up prophets to speak to the nation of Israel. I want to be really clear what prophets even are. Prophets are not like magicians or soothsayers or fortune tellers. You know, they don't go around being like, oh, I see riches in your future. You know, it's not, it's not that kind of shtick. Prophets are men that God raises up to speak on his behalf. Their job is to call Israel back to the covenant that they have with God. Remember who you belong to. Come back to God. And so they call out injustice. They call out idolatry. Uh, they speak for God to the people. Does that make sense? So that's who the prophets are. And the most prominent and powerful of all the prophets are, of course, Elijah and Elisha. They're the two most prominent, most powerful ones, and they appear right in the center of this book of Kings. They kind of straddle the now break in between first and second Kings. And Elijah, who we're going to be looking at in this series, he, uh, he's raised up by God in the middle of the rule of King Ahab in the north. So he is the adversary of Ahab. Because I don't know if you know anything about history here, but Ahab is described in Scripture as not just an evil king, but the most evil king Israel had ever seen. This is a bad dude. He's all about worshiping the Baals, and he's all about murdering anyone who doesn't. In fact, he's married to a woman. Does anybody remember his wife's name? Yeah, Jezebel, very good. Her name, Jezebel, Bel means Baal, and the, the word Jezebel literally means married to Baal. So this is the mistress of Baal that Ahab is married to. She is the killer of Yahweh prophets herself. And so this is a bad power couple, right? An evil power couple, and it's during this time that God raises up Elijah. It's in this culture that God raises up Elijah, where the culture is crumbling around them, right? Where Israel <clears throat> is already in clear decline. Israel is dead and doesn't even know it yet. They're going to be <clears throat> taken over by Babylon before too long. They're falling apart, and everything is, everything has gone terrible all around the nation, and it's during that time that God raises up Elijah. And this that we're going to look at today is the story of how he does that. So for whatever reason, we just jump right into the story of Elijah. Elijah gets almost no introduction in Scripture. I mean, we just kind of jump right into the story as if we know who he is and know what he's all about. Here's what it says in 1 Kings 17.1. Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give word. So what can we learn about Elijah right here? Well, we learn, first of all, he's from Tishbe. And you know what Tishbe is? Nothing. It's nothing. It's a speck on a map in 
Gilead. It's right, it's right to the east of the Jordan River, and it's not noteworthy historically. Nobody knows anything about it. No one's even sure which spot it is. We think maybe it's this one, could be that one. It's just kind of a nowhere town, Tishbe. Nobody cares. All we really know, by the time you get to 1 Kings 17, all we really know about Elijah is his name. But his name says it all. In fact, it's the first blank on your page. The name Elijah means, my God is Yahweh. My. So this moment where, where Elijah shows up, this is a huge moment in the face of this evil king and his evil wife, the queen. In this moment where Israel is in this great decline and all of the culture is all about the Baals, he dares to show up on the scene and he says, I serve God. In fact, I'm even named the God. My God is Yahweh. This man from nowhere is raised up by God to speak truth to power. And he says, he shows up on the scene saying, my God is Yahweh. God's going to do something incredible through this nobody whose God is Yahweh. God's going to turn this man into a great and influential prophet, right? He's going to become the most notable prophet of Israel's history. So powerful that 400 years later, the prophet Malachi would say that it's Elijah that'll show up again and herald the coming of the Messiah. So powerful, so influential that Elijah actually appears to the 12 disciples of Christ at the transfiguration. It's Jesus and Moses and Elijah. A thousand years later, so powerful, so influential that Elijah will appear again alongside Moses to herald the final return of the Messiah. This is a huge, huge moment where this guy shows up on the scene and he's, a, he's about to become this somebody, but he's not there yet. And so God's got work to do in this man first thing Elijah does apparently is he makes this no rain declaration he says you know he shows up to Ahab the king the king of the Baals I mean he represents Baal to the people and so he shows up to this guy he says hey it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain this is a huge thing that he does speaking truth to power in fact what he's saying is thanks for getting ahead of me again Larry what he's saying is this no rain means that Baal, you will no longer reign. My God is Yahweh, and we'll see who's actually going to reign. And this no rain declaration, it's like a big, it's like a big stake driven into the ground. It's the first hint that there's a showdown coming. He's drawing the line, and there's gonna be a showdown coming, a showdown between Yahweh the God of all gods, and Baal, the demon God. And we'll be seeing that showdown coming up as we study in Elijah in the coming weeks. But he says, there will be no rain and that you, Baal, will no longer reign. He's, he's, he's speaking against the ruling regime. 
right? He's speaking against the current media narrative. You know, the king doesn't want to hear this. Jezebel doesn't want to hear this. Nobody wants to hear this. They all want to seek the blessing of the rain God. They want to seek Baal. And he's saying Baal will no longer reign. There will be no rain. So what are they going to want to do? They're going to want to shut him up. They're going to want to cancel culture this guy. Right? They're going to want to suppress his social media posts. Or ban him from Twitter or X or whatever they call it now. Right? They're going to want to ban him. Get him off. Get him off so that he can't be heard. Right? Except back then, obviously, they didn't have that stuff. So how do you cancel someone back then? <laughs> off with their head. Right? So they're going to want to kill him. He's just stood up and made this defiant statement that Baal will no longer reign. And so now, God's going to have to do something in this guy because he's made this bold statement, but he ain't ready to back it up yet. He is not there yet. And so he's got a lot of work that he's got to do. He's got to become the man that God's going to use. And so if I'm watching the movie version of this, it cuts now to the training scene, right? The training montage where the music is playing. It's Eye of the Tiger, and he's running up the steps, right? He's doing push-ups, and he's doing pull-ups, right? He's doing the crane technique, right? He's doing all that stuff, getting ready for the big fight, right? No. That's not the way God raises a godly man. Here's what happens next in verse 2. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go into the east and hide by the Kareth brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Go and hide and wait. Go hide and, and wait there. Because they're going to, kill you but I'm going to protect you they're out to destroy you but I'm out to build you up they want to ruin you and I want to provide for you so God's saying go and hide right now and, and he tells them somewhere very specific now, don't just go and hide but there's a specific brook way out here in the desert way down to the south it's the Kareth brook now, this is an interesting term, careth. The word careth means to cut down or to cut off. Think of pruning back a crepe myrtle tree to its stalk. It's cutting down, pruning. Think about, think about trimming back your hedges for this cold season to where they're not all out and grow... They're trimmed way on back. That's the idea of this word, careth. I want you to go to the cut down brook. So I'm going to take you, is what he's saying. I'm going to take you through a season of pruning. I'm going to take you through a season of breaking. I'm going to take you through a time where you're going to have to learn to deal with pain. You're going to have to learn to deal with isolation. You're going to have to learn to deal with suffering. And you're going to have to learn to be totally dependent upon me. 
God's saying to Elijah, I'm going to humble you privately before I use you publicly. I'm going to do something in you that's very, very deep so that you can go on to do more than you ever thought possible. Oh, I'm going to build you up, but first there's a lot I've got to cut out. In other words, next blank on your page, God works deeply in him so he can work powerfully through him. God works deeply in him so that he can work powerfully through him. You know what that's like. I think I've had multiple conversations with people just this week, people here who feel like they're in the Kareth Brook. They're camped out by this cut-down brook. They're, they're learning what it means to go through a time of grieving, a time of sorrow, a time of loss, a time of pain, a time of laying awake at night and questioning who they even are and what they're about. They're going through this time that they never thought they could get through before. And in some cases, they're asking, where are you, God? Where are you, God? And all along, maybe God's right there and he's got you exactly where he wants you so that he can work deeply in you and build something much better in you so that he can use you in a powerful, powerful way. Right? We've all been through it to some degree or another because all of us are born with plenty that needs to be cut away because all of us are born into sin and we've all built a life of sin and disaster in some way or another. We've built our life on lies, the lie that God isn't really worthy of being God. I should be my own God, and I've built my life my way, not his way. I had sin that needed carathing, that needed cutting back, cutting down, and cutting out. But I couldn't do anything about it myself. That sin is awful because not only does it lead to disaster in my life, but it also separates me from God and puts me under his judgment. The wages of sin is death. But God loved me so much that he sent his son. And Jesus came to this world. And on that cross, he took all my sin on himself. He bore all of my sin in his own body on that cross, and he died in my place. The wages of sin is death, so he paid what I owed. And he died in my place, freeing me up to be able to have a relationship with God. Three days later, he rose from that grave. <clears throat> and now, today, he makes that relationship with his father possible by stepping into my life and saying, come on, whatever it is you're holding on to, let's cut it out. Let's cut it out. Let's clear it out. Let's make way for the Lord in your life. Let's change you. Let's transform you into something new. Has he done that in your life? That's what he's doing in my life now. That's what he's always doing He's always bringing me, Holy Spirit's always bringing me to the point of conviction of sin. I repent and he helps me deal with it and he creates something brand new in my life. So, at this heavy moment, I thought it'd be time for a light story. 
This is an old pastor story. Heard it years and years ago. Uh, but it's powerful because even though it's sad, there's three good lessons to learn from this story. You ready for the story? You like stories? All right. So here we go. It was wintertime, and there was a little birdie flying south for the winter. This birdie's flying south, but he got off to a late start, and so he's flying through a snowstorm. As he's flying through the snowstorm, his little wings start getting caked with snow and ice and begin to freeze up, and he can't hardly move his wings anymore, and sure enough, he comes to a crash landing in a field. This bird is there in the field, and he can barely move his wings. He's, he's freezing more and more. He's freezing up, and he's, he's thinking to himself, oh, my gosh, this is the worst. This is miserable. I'm going to die here. I'm just going to die frozen. It's, it's horrible. I'm not going to make it south for the winter. And he kind of just lay in there in that field, resigned himself to his fate. But it was right about that time that a cow came along and stood right over and just dumped right on him just right there on the bird and the birds in there going oh my gosh I thought it was bad before but this is the worst I'm not only going to freeze to death but I'm going to die here in this manure but in just a few seconds that manure began to thaw him out and his wings began to move and he's like oh my goodness I might make it through here and his wings began to flap and he gets really excited and begins to chirp 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 he's getting ready to fly away but just then a cat comes along and kills him and eats him the end (laughs) told you it was sad (laughs) it's not sad because the bird dies it's sad because the cat wins cats okay but there's three good lessons three good lessons from this story ready three good lessons when you're in the careth Brooke, three good lessons. Number one, not everyone who dumps on you is your enemy. Number two, not everyone that digs you out is your friend. Number three, when you find yourself in the manure, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> I just, I just was reminded of that story this week, and I was like, oh, that's a good story. Some of you right now are feeling like, man, I'm, in the, I'm at the Kareth Brook. I'm, I'm camped out at the Kareth Brook. I've been here for too long. I'm being broken. I'm being cut down, and I feel like God has forgotten about me, but maybe I'm here to say maybe he's right there beside you all along, and he's working something into you. One of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, he writes about what God is really doing even through your pain in your life. And he says, it's doubtful that God will use anyone greatly until he breaks them deeply. You know, so when you go through the trials in your life, you go through the cancer, you go through the loss, you go through the divorce, when you go through being fired from your job for no reason, when you go through the problems, the conflicts with your family, God may just be doing something in you. God may just be preparing you to use you in lives of others like he never would otherwise. He may be teaching you lessons that you couldn't learn any other way. 
And that's why he's got you like he has Elijah at the Kareth brook. It's in this cutting down that God is teaching Elijah something. Let's see what's going on here in verse 4. God says, drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I've commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped beside the Kareth brook east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. I mean, just think about it. This guy is all alone. He's isolated. There's no town nearby. There's no Walmart, no Lowe's to get supplies that he needs. There's no Longhorn. There's no Taco Bell. Can I get an amen for Taco Bell? No? No amens for Taco Bell? Man, first service like Taco Bell. I love Taco Bell. I'm a big Taco Bell fan. Anybody else? No? Okay, so Elijah had no, no Taco Bell, no Longhorn. He had nothing, nothing, except for God's DoorDash service, bringing him bread and meat via ravens. It's kind of a good deal. And by the way, by the way, this to me is great biblical evidence that God wants you to eat meat. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. So, what's God doing? What's God doing here? He's got nothing to rely on, no resources at all. He's just got to trust in God. And here, by this Kareth Brook, God is clearly showing him over a period of months and months and months as this drought drags on that, listen, I've called you to my purpose and I will be faithful to you. If you're walking where I call you to walk, if you're camping where I call you to camp, if you're becoming what I want you to become, I will always be faithful to you. You can count on me. God is saying, I will provide for your needs. You'll notice that he doesn't give Elijah a refrigerator to keep several days worth of food in. Doesn't give him cabinets to keep dry goods in. He doesn't give him deep freezes to prepare for the apocalypse, right? All he has is what he needs for that day. And he trusts God for just enough. In fact, the next blank on your page is Elijah at the Kareth Brook. Elijah learns to trust God to provide. He says, I'll be faithful, and you can count on me. Joshua had to learn this lesson himself. Remember Joshua long before Elijah. The people of Israel had wandered for 40 years in the desert as Moses led them. And he led them all the way up right to the doorstep of the promised land. But he didn't make it. God allowed Moses to go up on the mountain and to look into the promised land, but Moses never came down from that mountain. And so God met with Joshua and he said, you're up, you're next. I'm calling you. I'm putting you on my purpose and you will now speak on my behalf. You will now lead my people into the promised land. You are the leader and you speak for me. And here's what God tells Joshua in Joshua 1, 7. He says, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. 
Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Amen? God promised Joshua, you're on my plan. I'm sending you, so I will be faithful to provide for you. God's telling Elijah, you're my guy. I'm sending you, so I will be faithful to provide what you need. As long as you're walking in the footsteps of Jesus and following him, going where he calls you to go, he will take care of the rest. Trust him. Trust him. Because he's God and he's good. Elijah trusted him, and then something happened in verse 7. It says, after a while, the brook <laughs> dried up, for there was, duh, no rainfall anywhere in the land, right? Because there's a drought, because Elijah himself is the one that spoke the drought. I'm sure Elijah could have been like, you know, God, I thought you had me here. I mean, I'm learning to trust in you. I've been trusted in you, and the way you've been provided literally just dried up. You ever had that in your life? The thing that gives you security, the thing that gives you peace, the thing that gives you hope all of a sudden is gone in your life? You ever had that? She's gone all of a sudden? What you thought was a happy marriage turns out to be the biggest disaster of your life? That job, all of a sudden, they just let you go. I've been there all this time. I've done all this stuff, and they just let you, kicked you to the curb. You had meaning. You had purpose. You had an identity there, and now you're nothing. I don't even know where our next paycheck's going to come from. Right, you had that. Maybe, maybe you were you identify with some friends. You had a friend group of people that you always hung with, but all of a sudden you find yourself on the outs. It just obliterates. It just explodes. Maybe your family's done that in the past. The thing that you were trusting in for security just dried right the heck up. Now what? Now what do you do? God, I thought I was. I thought you were providing for me. I thought. I thought you had me. I thought I could always trust in you, and you just swiped it out from under my feet. What now? Well, God tells him what now. In verse eight, the Lord says to Elijah, "Go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon." In other words, chill, dude. Don't worry. It's okay. I've had this planned all along. I've been working in you. I've been doing something powerful in you. And now it's time to take your first steps. So I let this brook dry up because, you know, sometimes, sometimes everything else has got to dry up before you finally learn to take a step of faith and trust in me. And so I want you to go to Zarephath. Now listen, Zarephath isn't the next town over from the Kirith brook. Zarephath is like a hundred miles away, literally about a hundred miles away across dry, barren land. It's this little village way up in the north, and it's far away from where he's been. And so he's got a brook just dried up, and he's got to travel. 
and he didn't make his car payment. His car was repossessed. So now he's got to walk. He's got to walk 100 miles through this dry, dry drought land. And he makes it to Zarephath. He makes it there to Zarephath. In fact, it says in verse 10, so he went to Zarephath. Just simple statement. He went there. He went. He obeyed God. In other words, next blank on your page, Elijah waits but doesn't hesitate. He's been there all along at the Kirith Brook, waiting, waiting, waiting. God, what are you doing? Waiting, waiting, waiting. I really want to get out of here. Waiting, waiting, waiting. But then the minute God says go, he goes. He doesn't hesitate. He's not like, well, you know, I think maybe if I you know, do this, or I have a plan B, or maybe there's an alternative, or I, I got a brother that lives nearby. Uh-uh. As soon as God says go, he goes far to Zarephath. I wish I had the time to go through the whole story of what happens to Elijah in Zarephath. I don't have the, you ought to read the whole chapter of chapter 17, but I'm going to hit the highlights real quickly. He arrives in Zarephath, and he's kind of weary and thirsty and hungry from his long, long journey. And he bumps into a lady there, a widow. And he's like, hey, could you give me some water, please? She starts to go get him some water. He's like, oh, and, and could you give me some bread also? And she's like, dude, it's a drought. Haven't you heard? Duh. There's no, nobody. Nope. This whole town is dying. There's barely any water here. <clears throat> and nobody's got any food. In fact, <clears throat> I was just on my way to take the last we have to make a meal for my son. I've, all I got is literally a few drops of cooking oil and a small handful of flour. And I was literally on my way to make our last meal before we die. There's nothing left here. What are you kidding me? And he's like, listen. I've learned to trust in God. Trust me. Get some water. Make me some bread. God's going to take care of you. And so he ends up going and staying with her. She gives him bread and water. And it turns out that because he moves in and stays in the upper room of her house, she continues to have enough oil and flour all throughout the drought. It just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming miraculously. The man of God on God's plan is provided for by God. But that doesn't mean all the problems are solved. I mean, this widow has a young son and he ends up getting sick and he gets sicker and sicker and before long he actually dies. He dies. You can imagine her pain, her grieving. She's crying and she says, man of God, my son dies. He's dead. He's, he, he just died. What are you doing to me? And he says, I've learned to trust God. Bring him to me. And she brings his lifeless corpse. She hands her boy to Elijah, who takes his body up the steps toward his room, and he puts the boy on his own bed and he says God I've learned to trust in you I've seen you do some amazing things and I think you can do this this is a huge statement of faith because at this point nowhere in recorded history of Israel do we have anyone raising from the dead nobody 
has ever raised from the dead. But he prays and he asks God to raise this boy from the dead. And sure enough, this boy rises from the dead and he's alive. Elijah hugs him and carries him back downstairs and says, look, here's your son and he's alive. And she parties, man, she rejoices. This nobody from nowhere who had no introduction, he's just Elijah from Tishbe in verse 1. 23 verses later, this woman reintroduces us to Elijah. And here's what she says in verse 24. She says, Now I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. Instead of Elijah just me being some man from somewhere, now he's a man from someone. Now she says, I know for sure. Now I know who God really is. All the culture, everybody around me is telling me that the Baal is God. But now I know for sure. I know who you are. And because I know who you are, I know who he is. He's not just someone from somewhere. He's someone from someone. God has been working and preparing Elijah for this moment and for this great thing that he's about to do. And he's not the same person he was before. Now he's a person, he doesn't step in with geography. I'm from Tishbe. He steps in with authority. I'm from God. And wherever he goes now, he speaks for God. He acts on God's behalf. And people around him are saying, now I know for sure. This is what God does at the Kareth Brook. And I don't know about you, you know, but I don't want to be known as Steve, that guy from Florida. I, I just don't, I don't need to be known by that. I want people to know that Steve speaks for God. I want, I want to leave people knowing for sure who God is because I've learned to trust him that much that I'll actually speak and act on his behalf. And that's what I believe God wants for you also. So my question is this, in this culture that's crumbling around us, in this culture of idolatry, in this culture of woke garbage, who is God gonna raise up next? Who is it that God's gonna raise up to speak truth to power, to begin to change this culture one life at a time? I believe he may raise a student in high school to begin to change Gilmer High School. I believe he may raise up a housewife who may just start networking with other housewives to change this world for Christ. He may raise up somebody who's a business owner to say, I'm not content with just being a guy from LJ or a guy from Atlanta or a guy from Florida or whatever, but I want people to know for sure and I'm gonna speak for God in people's lives. Because who are you? You aren't just someone from somewhere. You are a child of God. You are freed from your sin. 
you're no longer a slave to the things of this world. You're a new creation in Christ. You walk in the presence and the power of God. And you don't have to worry about where the temple is located because he goes where you go. He goes before you and he comes behind you. And he speaks through you, child of God, because he says you are the light of the world. What is he doing to raise you up? And what does he want to do through you? Last blank on your page. I want to be known for whose I am. Don't you?